Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Logic Behind the Lighting podcast. I am sorry for getting this out late. I mean, if you've noticed, I apologize. Um, I swear I had some really good reasons. And we're still on lockdown for the entire industry. So to be honest, I don't have any good excuses. But let me just admit that I fell behind and didn't get things done on time. My bad. I still blame Deke. I mean, there's a whole story behind that because it's likely his fault. Uh, but I'm guessing that's not a good enough excuse, and Will will probably send me a message with proof that it couldn't have been his fault because some obscure study that was done in Paraguay in the 40s. Whatever, I'm moving forward. Okay, so today I wanted to talk about color. And I have to admit I'm not entirely sure as to why, because it's become less of a thing now that lights are basically computers. And you can make color changes with just a simple turn of three buttons 17 different ways. Oh my god, I just had a realization. Picking colors on a sky panel is like working through a cheat code or a special move on Street Fighter. This seriously makes sense because it takes me a minute to find what I'm looking for and there's a logic to it and I had to follow a path, but the guys on my crew can usually go through the menu like it's nothing. I knew I should have gotten Nintendo 64 when it came out. Who knew? Anyway, what I was saying is that color may not be such a big deal now, or at least the approach to it has changed dramatically in the last decade. Let me explain. It starts with film stocks. I'm sure I mentioned that lights used to be either daylight or tungsten, right? Those were your options before you started adding physical gel to them. Um, and that made sense because, to be honest, your film options were daylight or tungsten. Uh, there were a number of different options with film speeds and grain size and how they'd respond to color. But when push came to shove, you were picking a daylight stock or a tungsten stock to put in the camera. Okay, granted, Kodak looked different from Agfa, which looked different from Fuji. But... No more than a red camera looks from a Panasonic from an Alexa. But that being said, okay, I may have to digress for a second here, as you know I'm prone to do, and I'll try to make this quick because the odds are that you at least have a passing knowledge of this, if not a complete understanding. But just in case, you know, for the people in the back, uh, okay, so daylight and tungsten film stock. Basically, the big difference is what they see is white light. The difference is that tungsten film stock would see something like a light bulb that burns about 3,000 degrees as white light. Uh, while daylight uh, film stock sees the 5,600 degree light that comes from the sun as white light. What I mean is that film and video aren't anywhere near as good at interpreting things as your eyes are. Your eyes may see the nuances, but it's not as blatantly problematic as what the film and video see. For example, if you're sitting in a room with the overhead on and it's a regular old light bulb, uh, so it's nice and warm, you may not notice that the light outside is a dramatically different color. I mean, you may, but it may not register because it's just something that's in the periphery. Uh, now, granted, things have changed with video, and it downplays the big differences really well. But with film, you were more prone to notice the color difference. Uh, again, going back, with your eyes in that room with the overhead on, there'll be an overall blue hue to the room, but nothing egregious. And when you go outside, the blueness of the daylight doesn't feel blue at all. It feels like white light. It shifts. Your eye shifts from... A to B quickly. You, inside, white light is white light. Light bulbs are white light. Go outside, daylight's white light. The difference, okay, the best way I can explain the difference is I'm sure you've seen your parents' old home videos and watched them as they move from outside or inside, moving in, in and out, and, and the color gets all messed up. And that's why. The settings on the camera were wrong. Back in the day, video cameras had four basic settings. Light bulb, tube, sun, and cloud because that's moving up the color temperature scale. Light bulb, 3200, tube, 4300, sun, 5600, cloud, 7000. 
just like that. My digression needs a little digression. I want to talk about fluorescent lighting really quick because I said 4300 like that's an end-all be-all, but it's not. Um, fluorescents used to be the bane of filmmakers. At least to me, they were. I, I hated walking into environments that had a ton of flows back in the day because that meant the color was always a mess. If you walked into a fluorescent environment with big windows so you could see the light outside, it was a disaster. Uh, even if the... I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me take a step back. It was because of the green spike in the spectrum. See, light bulbs in the sun, if you look at uh, the reading on their spectrum, their hills, you know those really fancy new saconic color temperature meters that you can set the setting on them and you can see the whole spectrum of the light uh, bit by bit, chunk by chunk, starting with uh, blue at the top and uh, red at the bottom. With with a tungsten light, it's going to be bottom heavy. It's going to be nice, smooth. The, 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 the top blue side is going to be uh, really low, and it's going to slowly move up till you get to the red side of the spectrum, and it's, it's all the way to the right. And daylight's the opposite. It starts all the way to the right at the top and just moves down. It's, it's, it's a continuous, steady move down. Does that make sense? Can you see that in your head right now? Um, fluorescence. Those were a mess. Those are a mess. They're like that guy who sings the national anthem next to you at the game. He finds a way to hit all the potential notes, especially the wrong ones, and he does it all loud. It flows on that, that, that nice even spectrum that you got from the daylight or tungsten sources. They'd have this nasty green spike in them that would make everything look sickly and green. Um, it didn't matter what color the tubes were, be they warm white or cool white or daylight, that green spike would be there. So you either have to change all the tubes in the environment, like if you had, a, like I said, if you have a window, window, you'd match to the window. So you'd have to change all the tubes in the whole space to a specialty bulb. And these specialty bulbs were expensive because they were designed to deal with that green spike. So you'd either have to get a ton of those or you'd have to gel the windows. You have to gel everything, the windows and the lights. And option B happened a lot because not all bulbs had color-corrected versions. You know those four-pin flows that break when you try to take them out? Yeah, I hate those things with every ounce of my being because there was never a good version of them, one that existed without the green spike. There was no, no color-corrected versions of those. So you had to either gel them or take them out. The other thing about flows is they shift according to the age of the bulb. So gelling them is a nightmare. It was all guesswork, and you'd usually guess wrong. Nine times out of ten, I would gel them, and three of the four that I would gel would be wrong. It drove me nuts. Yeah, uh, okay. I, I just went off on the last little bit of problems that don't really exist anymore. I so, I'm sorry. I mean, I know that flows still exist and there's still a mess and a fight, but now you can set the camera to accommodate on some level. Because when there was only two color temperatures of film stock you had to choose from, and they were very precious about what they saw and how they saw everything, you had to make big changes to the environment to make it work for the camera. Now it's not really, really easy to change the uh, uh, camera to accommodate the light temperature, but it's a hell of a lot easier. You don't necessarily, you can, you can muscle through. I'm sorry, where was I? Right, I was basically back on track. You can set the camera to accommodate the dominant color temperature in the room and then set the lights to match them. So we're shooting at Home Depot and there's a ton of overhead cool white 
fluorescence in our environment. Easy. We take our lights in, uh, we set them to 4,300, add some green to the tint, and on the camera, set the camera to 4,300 and put a few cc's of magenta. Easy peasy. It matches out. It, it zeroes out. White light becomes white. And everything is basically the same. And if it's not, you can look at the monitor and say, oh, I see a problem. I need to add blank. And it solves it. it it's so easy that it becomes a look choice. Now we can really mess with things because it's so mani manipulable. Ah, manipulable. Sorry. Um, it becomes a tool to achieve a look. Let me explain that one. I remember when Backdraft came out. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard about it. It was a fireman movie. Anyway, everybody raved about it. Everybody oohed and awed over the color of the fire. There were articles written about it, and you can go find them in the really old copies of American Cinematographer. But what it came down to is the DP used daylight balance film to make the fire look even more orange and fiery. And looking back, it's a whole lot of, duh, uh, that's a gimme. But back then, it was huge. And don't get me started on the way I had to pretzel my brain to understand how they made the fire blue in one of the Batman movies. That was huge. But now, now I never see a camera set for 5600 or 3200. Remember that in film days, those were your options. Now, I see 4300 more than anything. And just saying this out loud, that means that according to the camera, a light has to be 4300 to be white. That means that daylight is going to feel cold. Light bulbs are going to feel really warm, but you're kind of splitting the difference, so nothing is too out of whack. It kind of all falls into a range, which makes things easier. You've got more wiggle room. You've got more things you can do. Less things are wrong. It's more like an eye. It, it, it's like you've adjusted. You, if you hit the mid-range, it's kind of like you've adjusted in the room. Another favorite of late is seeing the camera set at 2,500, which makes the light bulbs feel kind of cold. Or, or do the opposite. Set the camera at 10,000 when you're outside, and it feels like perpetual golden hour because the daylight feels so much warmer than your camera's set for. And that's what I mean by it becoming a tool. DPs manipulate the recording instrument to, record, to, re, to achieve a look. Some do it more than others. I worked on a job one time when the DP didn't manipulate the camera color on the camera as much as he put a red filter in front of the lens and then all our lights we dialed in some cyan uh, why uh, because the cyan light new was neutralized by the red filter and since the camera and the light were both 3200 lights at their base they both seemed white because the cyan was negated by the red but the lamps in the room the regular old practicals on the tables they got weird a red glow was there and it was subtle but it was there. Ah, boy, another digression real quick. Let me just go. I, I should point out, talking about color and lamps, this is what made me think of it, is, is that something overexposed will negate its color. It doesn't really matter how deeply saturated a color is compared to the camera. If it's overexposed enough, the light will read as white. But where the light drops off, where, where, the, where the amount of light drops off, that's where you see the color. If you want to see what I mean, Set up a light that's pointing at a camera and turn it on. Put something really funky on it. I bet you, uh, anything you want, I bet you a dollar that the light reads as white on camera. The ball of the light, the thing that you see, on the source in the camera, it's going to be reading white. But your buddy, who's standing off to the right of the shot, that's outside the flare, that guy is going to be the color that you have on the light. 
And that can be the reason why sometimes you have to do a bunch of things on set. For example, if the actor gets up in the tungsten room, you're on location, right? And the actor gets up in a tungsten room and opens the door to go outside, that opens a whole can of worms. Because the open door reveals the fact that outside it's bright as hell, so if it's overexposed, it's going to read white and bright and brutal. But what's weird is that when they open the door, there's a moment of blue light that comes in the room that's just, it's just jarring. And yeah, okay, as tempting as it is to make the dad joke of a door that's a jar making jarring light. I'm going to avoid that. Maybe I won't. You can never tell. Anyway, color has really become a tool that gets used a lot. Uh, you have to pay attention to it. You have to focus on it. You have to solve the problems. But on the other hand, sometimes you can use those problems to your advantage. And a lot of DPs will do that. They'll use these problematic things with color to their advantage. And that's what I was talking about with rating the, the camera to 10,000 in a 5,600 environment. The problem is that the, the daylight is white light. You want it warm. You can't gel the sun. That's a problem. The solution is adjusting the camera, which is a relatively new thing. It's fun to do. You could used to do it with color timing, but it was a thing. Now you can do it on the fly, on the day, problem solved. Color is a tool. And to be honest, I think the British were a step ahead of us on that. I remember working with some British DPs when I was an electrician, and we had to carry gels for days because they would really play with color. I distinctly remember a call for the light coming in through a bathroom, a normal bathroom. It was a normal, it was a rom-com, simple, basic, nothing weird. The light coming through the bathroom was to be gelled with special lavender, while the light on the background looking outside the window had loving amber on it. It was weird. On that job, we carried 50 rolls of gel colors, and we used every single one of them. And that seems like a British thing, because it's happened since then. Or, or it was. Maybe it was a 90s thing. I, I don't know. But this brings me to what I think is the biggest takeaway for this episode. The reason why some guys use a lot of color, while some skew cold with their color temperatures, and others rely heavily on party colors, the reason is no one really knows what they're doing. And that's a good thing. Let me explain this one because it came out a lot harsher than it was supposed to be. Let me put it this way. If you work for a DP who relies solely on their DIT and works off the waveform monitor only to make sure that everything is in the right, perfectly exact range it's supposed to be on to accommodate the camera that you're using, it's going to look so bleh, so boring, so neutral. It's not going to have any spark. So DPs have to go at another route, and they make it up as they go along. They try things that may work. They do others that don't, but with a little, little manipulation, it actually turns out okay. And they're not learning it. They didn't learn it. Okay, they're, they're, they're basing it on the ways they learned and who they learned from. The professionals that you see now take everything, and they didn't necessarily learn it in school. They learned it from doing and that's why I feel fairly confident saying the Brits used to play with color a lot. That was what they knew to use to mix up the look. Americans used shadow. The Brits used color. It was a thing. Uh, because basically, I, I'm not explaining this well, but what it comes down to is lighting and camera are oral, oral traditions. But they read like a game of broken telephone. We learn mostly from being on set and watching other people do things and incorporating the different things that we like and avoiding the things we don't. We're told 
when we start out, we're doing this to make it look good. So we understand that that look looks good. We understand that Rembrandt lighting looks good because we were shown that it looks good. I swear to God, because I, I, I show my wife things I work on and she's like, whatever, there's a lot of shadow and I'm thinking it looks sexy as hell. But I realized that I think it looks sexy as hell. We light for us. Um, and we light for us from what we learned from the people who taught us as to what's pretty, what's aesthetically pleasing. If you don't believe me, double think it because you might be surprised at how much your taste jibes with the people that you respect. And you don't respect them because of necessarily their taste. A lot of times the people you respect are the people you worked with who taught you and they showed you what they thought was pretty. Now, please understand that you're listening to a guy who went to film school a long time ago, and I'm telling you that everything I learned was from someone else who learned it from someone else, etc., on set. The film school was essentially pointless. Everything I learned, I, I remember walking on a film set going, I don't know anything. I've got a master's degree in this crap. I don't know a damn thing because I had to learn. The thing about film and video is there's a lot of leeway when it comes to creating looks. You can get to the same basic look a thousand different ways with only nuance separating them. And color choices are proof of that. Remember that this is an industry that up until 10 years ago had two basic color choices and you had to choose your, uh, you, had to, you could choose from for your base. Now there's literally 10,000 color choices that you can use as your base. Now have movies changed their look a lot? Kinda? Not as much difference as between 10,000 and two though. That's what I mean about all the leeway. We have changed practically everything about the way we record the image, and yet the image is relatively similar. At least now it's not any more dissimilar than 2001 was from In the Heat of the Night. And if you watch those two movies, you'll see what I mean. They were within a year and a half of each other, and they couldn't look more disparate. They look more different then than any two movies look compared to something, compared to each other now. It, it Okay, again, let me temper what I say about no one really knows what they're doing. That's not necessarily true. Everyone has a method that works for them. But the thing is that most of them are very dissimilar from each other. And the reason that's okay is because the actual exact right way to expose film or video is going to make the most boring, bland, and blah images you've ever seen. I'm sorry. I went off on another big tangent again. I, needed to I need to figure out a way to stop that. But on the other hand, I'm officially over the age of 50, so the odds of me changing my ways are really low. Uh, maybe I should change the podcast to just inviting you over to the house so we can sit in rocking chairs on the front porch. And I'll just ramble on while I make sure I keep those damn kids off my lawn. Oh, well. Next week. But on that note, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up now. Thank you for listening. Please check out the website if you haven't already. I know... I mean, I don't always have the best ancillary information to put on there, but maybe there's a diamond somewhere in the rough. I don't know. In any case, it's electricandgrip.com. Please come by. Drop me a line or a comment or a suggestion, whatever. I'm easy. And as always, there's the Instagram account, uh, Logic Behind the Lighting. I'm usually hovering around there. If you need me, that's really a good, easy place to find me. And that's about it. Again, thank you for listening to the Logic Behind the Lighting podcast. And I will talk to you again next week, assuming... I don't screw up and drag my feet again. Uh, have a great day, and I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.